Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, our guest is Dara Warland. Dara is the Vice President of Creative Services for the News Literacy Project. The News Literacy Project is about making people better news consumers. She'll explain further. Dara has been with this group for nearly 10 years and has worked in a variety of roles before taking her current position. She has previously worked as a journalist and producer in a number of places, including one of my favorite networks, New York One News. By the way, she also hosts a podcast that we'll discuss shortly. Dara, welcome. Let's start by explaining what the group does, and we'll start broadly and kind of work to things that are more specific. How does the News Literacy Project help people be better news consumers? The News Literacy Project is a nonpartisan national education nonprofit, and we provide programs and resources to equip educators with the skills needed to help their students be smart, active consumers of news and information and more engaged participants in a democracy. And we do this through uh, several pathways. And recently we expanded our mission to also bring news literacy abilities to the general public. So we have a suite of programs and services and resources that we offer to educators. And then we also have a suite of the same that we offer to the general public. Checkology is probably the primary means by which we reach students. It's a browser-based e-learning platform that helps students develop news literacy, knowledge, skills, and habits of mind. We also have the SIFT, which is a weekly newsletter with timely examples of misinformation, social media trends, and issues around press freedom. And it includes discussion prompts and activities for the classroom. We offer professional development. We have a resource library on our website with downloadable lessons and activities and infographics, quizzes and training materials. Uh, and then we also do an annual event called National News Literacy Week, which we launched last year. And that's the last week of January. And that is aimed at the general public and educators to help increase awareness around news literacy and its value. And then for the public, we also just recently launched a version of Checkology that's public facing. It's kind of a scaled down version of what we offer educators and students. And then we also recently launched our Get Smart About News newsletter, which is uh, similar to and based on the SIFT, but without the educator prompts. We have a mobile app called Informable. It kind of offers game-like opportunities for people to practice news literacy skills, things like separating news from opinion, fact from opinion, you know, is this an ad or not? Uh, is this evidence or not? Uh, then we also have a podcast, which I host, which is called Is That a Fact? And we launched that in September. So a lot of new initiatives for the general public, obviously, that we just recently launched because this is a new part of our mission. So in, in the end, this is a very much a teaching group. And we've had a couple of teaching groups that we've talked to here. And I guess the, the question would be, uh, what do people need to learn? What are the basic issues that people are having in consuming news right now? Yeah, well, I'd say, you know, social media is definitely at the heart of a lot of the issues we're seeing around, um, you know, challenges to people's ability to determine the credibility of information. That's really at the heart of it. And, you know, certainly before social media and the internet, evaluating the credibility of a news report was always important. But now uh, with the disaggregation of news and information that you see on social media, where things are essentially being taken away from their original source, put in your news feed, and presented alongside 
you know, memes and rumors and conspiracy theories, it's increasingly difficult to be able to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, and the other thing that's happening is people are really challenged when it comes to separating opinion from fact. And, and that's something I think that really started with 24 hour news, where the two are often very blended and not clearly labeled or identified. Uh, you know, opinion is, people are sharing their opinions. You've got, you know, so-called talking head experts who are um, sharing their opinions on what might look otherwise like a news report with an anchor moderating um, to, to maybe the untrained eye, for example. So those are, I would say those are the two main issues. And then um, those are would the two you, main issues. Would you say that on top of that, certainly the psychology of people uh, is a big part of this, that people uh, now are very rushed People are very uh, impatient uh, and people might not be as quick uh, or know uh, to check uh, when they should be checking. Yeah, well, I mean, we live in the most complex information environment in human history. So, you know, you've got to give people a little bit of uh, leeway um, and, and understand the fact that we're all facing this fire hose of information coming at us that um, is incredibly difficult to sift through. And, you, you know, we have our smartphones on us at all times. I, you know, you might be getting alerts from news organizations repeatedly throughout the day. You're getting emails, you're getting texts, you're getting phone calls. Uh, so, you know, that inundation obviously leads to a lot of anxiety and, and um, we have, we make snap judgments often based on headlines. Um, and I think it's understandable. You know, I, I think all of us are facing this challenge. And then you combine that with certain sort of psychological tendencies that have been well researched, things like confirmation bias, for example. Um, you know, so we all have this tendency, um, and it doesn't really diminish with your degree of education. We all have this tendency to lean into information that confirms our beliefs and to pull away from information that contradicts our beliefs. And so you know, in social media, the algorithms are ultimately designed to further entrench those, right? Because everything that we click on becomes another um, force multiplier of what is going to be presented to us next. And then we become further and further sort of entrenched in our belief systems. And so to work against that and to be conscious of what we're consuming on a daily basis and what we're believing and what we're leaning into it takes work. It takes a lot of work. And the other thing is certainly that now the people that make the news have a direct pipeline uh, to the people who consume it through something like Twitter uh, or social media or TikTok. Uh, and as you see, for example, even a, a night or two ago, um, people are saying things about the president's health and you don't know what to what to believe. How do you, uh, how does the, the group, the news, literary, the news Literacy Project, uh, recommend that people deal with such things? Well, I guess what you're addressing is the fact that um, they, it, there used to be clear gatekeepers of information, right? Which was a good thing, but also had some um, drawbacks. Uh, so that, you know, the gatekeepers were professional journalists who uh, worked on large teams with editors who were vetting information and fact checking and ensuring that the information that they were sharing through, you know, limited avenues such as television or print or radio 
um, was accurate. Uh, whereas today, you know, you or I or anybody um, with any different kind of agenda can share their views um, or doctor an image or even create what's called like a cheap fake video and share it on social media and gain traction, right? So, so what's happened is um, we are all gatekeepers, ultimately, and we all have different degrees of ability to judge the credibility of what we're sharing. Uh, and the other thing is, it's not just who's posting this stuff, it's also who's sharing it, right? So like, I may not even be creating information and disseminating it, but every time I share information, I'm ultimately further disseminating it. I'm becoming, you know, sort of like an avenue of syndication for rumors and propaganda, you know, often unwittingly. So how do people, so I guess the question was, how do we deal with this? Um, well, I mean, I think it's really important to stop and think. Um, and it's so easy to hit the like button or the share button, um, but that's really currency on social media. And what you're doing is amplifying uh, information every time you do that. And so what'll often happen, okay, so like one of the rumors circulating about Trump is he was, um, you know, I think it was, uh, he was coming off of Air Force One um, or the helicopter when he was um, landing at Walter Reed. And there was a rumor that he had um, some oxygen that was um, being fed to him, you know. So you may be inclined to believe that and think, well, he's he's sicker than he's letting on. And, and there may be some political motivation behind your desire to lean into that information. And you probably are going to be inclined to share it, to like it, which is going to amplify it, even though you're not sharing it um, without verifying it. And you may think, what's the harm? What's the harm? Well, the harm is it's just as much as I think we all know in our uh, real lives, like IRL, that you know, there is harm caused by rumor, there's harm caused by gossip, there's harm caused by, um, you know, spreading misinformation about an individual. And I think we're less inclined to really understand the harm that is done um, to ultimately people's thinking and, uh, and the actions that they will take based on that misinformation. So I, I would say stop, especially if you're having a strong feeling about something, whether it's, you know, excitement or amazement or, anger or frustration, you know, stop and think and uh, double check. And if something is not verified, it might mean it's true and it hasn't been verified yet. That's fine. Just wait before you share it, you know, and, and check as many credible sources as you can. This uh, jibes with what you wrote about in a September 30th piece uh, in the New York Daily News. In fact, you, you gave a series of tips. The first one was pause to consider your emotional response to the information, a particularly strong reaction fear, anger, laughter, revulsion, amazement should prompt you to look closer. Uh, so it's essentially, it, we used to say, think before you speak. Now it's essentially think before you tweet and think before you, uh, you react. Is there, is there something, um, maybe this gets a little more personal, but is there something that particularly, as they would say, like grinds your gears, that when you see it uh, as a piece of misinformation or a type of thing that happens in the misinformation world uh, that you are particularly passionate about? Oh, uh, we've been doing a lot of work around conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking lately because we're working on a lesson for Czechology that will focus specifically on that. And we're deliberately calling it conspiratorial thinking as opposed to conspiracy theories because we want to put the emphasis on the kind of thinking that leads one down the path to believe a conspiracy theory and 
you know, I don't know the statistics around this, but it definitely seems that conspiracy theories are gaining a lot more traction uh, today. And I think it has to do with a, a few factors, particularly, you know, the falling trust in um, news media and, um, you know, social media is certainly contributing to the ability for people with outlandish theories to gather together in groups and then to contribute and build on conspiracy theories. Uh, so I would say, you know, that's something that when you spend a lot of time, particularly looking on message boards and social media groups at what people are sharing and what they're willing to believe uh, without double checking or without credible evidence, it's very concerning and, and incredibly damaging. And how do, you, uh, how do you react to when you see things, the latest things that come out from something like QAnon? Yeah, QAnon is really perplexing. Um, and it's really sort of like the grand poobah of all conspiracy theories, right? I mean, it's got everything you could really dream of in a conspiracy <laughs> theory. If you're somebody who's inclined toward conspiratorial thinking, I think what concerns me most about QAnon is that it's cult-like, right? It has almost like a cult-like leader who's this invisible figure. Nobody knows who QAnon is, who's who's making these Q drops. Uh, we don't know if it's multiple people. Um, there's, there's certainly no way to know whether it's a credible source, but I think there's plenty of indications that it's not credible um, using a lot of the um, sort of disinformation playbook, uh, you know, methods and language. Um, and yet people buy in very easily. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, QAnon is appealing because there's this, there's also growing mistrust of, you know, government institutions, right? And so QAnon is ultimately this idea that um, uh, there is a deep state um, and that in particular Trump is in the White House in Washington working to, um, to uproot the deep state. Um, I guess, you know, to use his language, drain the swamp, although not to say that Trump is, is a proponent of QAnon, although he has shared um, tweets uh, about QAnon. Um, and, and there are a growing number of members of Congress and former members of Congress who are uh, QAnon adher adherents. Um, and so that's really disturbing as well. And there's been so much reporting by really credible news organizations, deep investigative work into QAnon that's provided plenty of evidence that it is not credible and it's so outlandish. And yeah, I find it really disturbing that people are willing to believe it. And the problem is with conspiracy theories is that once somebody has bought into it um, and increasingly buys into it, there's really no reaching them because logic doesn't really work in contradicting a conspiracy theory because it's uh the way we sort of look at it it's almost like critical thinking run wild um and so you know the more critical thinking you apply to it the more um, uh, an adherent could could sort of just continue to throw uh, ridiculous arguments that are you just end up in sort of a downward spiral so that's why i think it's really important to address it before people tend to lean into it, right? So if we understand the psychological sort of weaknesses that lead us to want to believe in a conspiracy theory before we go down that path, we can stop ourselves uh, before we get there, right? So I think that's why it's really important to teach students before they've really become deeply entrenched.
Yep, it's essentially show them your, your daily news article and just put it like right in front of their faces and say, read this before you, before you do anything. Yeah, I mean, I wish it were that simple, but you know, I mean, that's why we have checkology, right? Yep. With multiple lessons and tools and exercises and activities, um, because it really is an entire, it requires an entire curriculum of uh, lessons and resources to really build one's news literacy abilities. How long does it take to go through uh, something like that as if I was to sign up for it, uh, you know, today? Well, checkology is designed to be used in many different ways right like so it's not like a uh, a curriculum that you go through sequentially and you know there are 13 lessons on the platform right now um but educators can explore them in in whatever order they like they can do one lesson they can do multiple lessons so each lesson takes about you know 45 minutes sometimes it's a class period sometimes they'll extend it over two class periods so you know we've had educators who have used it in the classroom once a week for an entire school year, you know, and actually managed to kind of spread it out that way. Um, and then we've had educators who have done more concentrated, uh, used it in a more concentrated way. So, you know, there's not really one, uh, you know, answer to that question. I want to segue over to, um, I asked you about uh, an issue that particularly grinds your gears. I have two that, that particularly get to mine. Uh, one is that I've kind of view everything with this as a multifaceted issue. There's the issue mm -hmm. of separating the truth from the fiction. And then there's the other separating what I would call hype from reality. I'll use an example just to educate the audience. At the Democratic National Convention, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez was part of the procedural motion nominating Bernie Sanders for president. And NBC News tweeted, in one of the shortest speeches of the DNC, Representative Ocasio-Cortez did not endorse Joe Biden. However, as she pointed out, that was extraordinarily misleading, given that she had previously endorsed Biden and her speech was of similar length to other nominating speeches. In other words, NBC was trying to make news out of something that really was not news. So how do you go about teaching people to understand how to deal with clickbait like that? Oof, you know, I think a lot of assumptions are being made in the interpretation of what happened, right? So NBC did tweet out um, immediately that AOC had not endorsed Biden and was endorsing Sanders instead. I can't remember the exact language. Um, for me, having worked in the news business, it's pretty easy for me to imagine a fairly junior staff member being uh, you know, have, having the keys to the, the yep. NBC Twitter, right? And um, probably not understanding the ins and outs of the Democratic Convention, probably hasn't been on the convention circuit for 10 years, like a more experienced political reporter, um, and, and had not read the information that was released by the convention to yep. journalists ahead of time making it clear that this is a formality and it is a requirement of um, the convention that every nominee who receives enough um, votes needs to uh, have an official nomination and be part of the roll call and that AOC was participating in that process, particularly herself as a supporter of more um, progressive democratic policies. She explained that herself, right, in, yep. in a tweet. So that's the other thing that's kind of interesting about our social media environment, that a mistake 
you know, I don't know, maybe it was designed to be clickbait. My, my guess is that it was more likely a mistake. So it was an yep. example of misinformation. And, and NBC, by the way, deleted the tweet and apologized for they it. They did. Right? Which is yep. what a credible news organization does when they inadvertently spread misinformation. So it is an example of misinformation. Yep. Not disinformation. Very unlikely that it was deliberately, you know, designed to mislead the public. And right. then AOC, I don't know if it was in real time, but probably pretty soon after, was able to correct the record. Yep. She has a lot of followers. So that was able to go viral. And actually, the first I heard of it myself uh, was AOC's correction. Yep. Um, so, and I actually think most people probably walked away. If anyone knew about what had happened, they probably remembered the correction of the record because so many news organizations covered this um, because of the whole flurry and controversy. I mean, AOC was really mad about it and she essentially yep. accused NBC of false, of, of deliberately falsely spreading misinformation, but it, that itself might even be some hype. Right. I've worked, so I've worked previously in um, places where junior staffers have had access. And I guess that, let's address it from, from that angle. The, I, I understand that she's able to correct it. Lots of things are able to happen, but uh, essentially the junior staffer is adding to the fire hose uh, and just making things even more difficult uh, for the person that, that's consuming the information. And I, I guess something like your kind of group, uh, how do you how do you suggest that people when they see something like that is it just again back to your you know consider your emotional yeah. response? Absolutely, and that's that's another great point is that we all need to understand that we're in or particularly in breaking news environments we need to understand as news consumers that the truth is provisional in the sense that. Um, particularly, you know, let's imagine that there's like a, a major event like an earthquake. Right. And um, obviously the information coming out, you know, from the ground is going to evolve over time. The number of people injured, the cost of the damage done, um, you know, how soon we knew about the earthquake, what it was like to experience on the ground. So you have to have this understanding that information and the truth is is provisional and is subject to change as more context and information becomes available. That's something that reporters know reporters understand that the news gathering process is a painstaking one um, and i think you know most journalists at credible news organizations are doing everything they can to make sure that they're not spreading misinformation that they're getting their facts right but we operate in such an intensely such an intensely competitive environment i say we as a former journalist i'm going back into my journalist head but like um and the pressures are intense to get information out quickly. And that's where I think a lot of the mistakes happen. And in that, you know, so I, I didn't work in a news environment with social media because I left news when social media really hit uh, prominence. I was already moving towards like news literacy education, um, but it was already hard enough in a 24 hour news environment um, where you're, you're, you're essentially trying to fill airtime at a 24 hour news organization like New York One, or I was also working at Fox News uh, for a period of time. And that's where I think a lot of the mistakes come up. I'm not the world's biggest fan of this 24 hour news environment. You know, I, I tend to prefer to digest my news um, in longer form, more thoughtful packaging. Most people don't. <laughs> 
Well, you know, I'm, I'm a former yeah. journalist. Yes, so me I too. I, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah, I come from a different perspective. But, you know, I also like to be in the know, just like anybody else. I want to know what's going on and I want to be, you know, I have that tendency too on social media to want to be the first to announce something. Like if I, you know, you hear that uh, RBG died, you know, you want to be the first to, to announce it on your social media feed or whatever. Um, but I, today though, I've learned enough to, to uh, really, um, kind of hold myself back from those instincts just because I do understand that uh, the truth is provisional in these situations. And it's something we certainly need to make more people uh, aware of. And another aspect of this uh, in my professional uh, field, I work with statistics on a daily basis. And I have seen statistics used for good. I have seen statistics used for bad. Uh, in the sports arena, a number of things are, are currently going on, including one where um, the big leagues are reporting coronavirus statistics and not necessarily uh, presenting the full picture of information. Uh, you, your group, the News Literacy Project, has a, a partnership with SAS uh, to essentially address this. Uh, and I'm curious if you could share with us more about that. We are partnering with SAS Analytics, which is a data company that provides software and analysis to large corporations to help them with, you know, interpreting data and um, statistics. And uh, we teamed up with them because uh, data literacy is obviously a really important element in news literacy increasingly so i think COVID is a great example that you brought up because we're all trying to be armchair statisticians and armchair epidemiologists and interpreting all this information and numbers coming at us you know what does it mean uh what's the mortality rate versus the death rate you know um so uh, when we teamed up with SAS, we were really excited because they are experts in this area and can provide that, um, you know, intellectual property and uh, subject matter expertise that we don't necessarily have on staff. And so, so far, we've done a series of blog posts with them focused on understanding COVID data. Um, and uh, they've actually been really successful. I think looking at our website data, we've actually seen a lot of people searching terms around COVID data, and that's what's bringing them to our website. And then, so, you know, happy to know that people who are searching for credible information about COVID statistics are, are landing there. And then um, more recently, as part of a PSA campaign that we're doing to uh educate the public about election and voting misinformation we teamed up with sas again to create a quiz it's just five questions um, that are designed to test the user's ability to evaluate um, statistics data uh, bar charts graphs etc um, and then we did a series of i think it's eight blog posts about interpreting data so that um, people can test their knowledge and then gain more knowledge and then they can take the test again and see if um, their score has improved. So, you know, we also, you know, as just as important, you know, data interpretation is really important when you're facing something like a global pandemic, but it's also incredibly important when it comes to understanding um, statistics that are coming out around the election. They may not be directly related to election polls, but there's a lot of facts and statistics that we all need to be able to interpret when we're weighing who we're going to cast our ballot for. And certainly it's the same as, as on the news side. The fire hose just comes at you and it just uh, spits out so much 
that you have to try and sift through it. Uh, I, find yeah, it and I find it challenging even for myself. Absolutely. I mean, look, I'm no expert in statistics either. And um, it sounds to me like you're much more expert in that area <laughs> than I am. Um, but yeah, I, I find it really helpful to be able to break it down and um, gain a little bit more knowledge. And at the very least, what it can do is stop me just like, you know, other areas um, on social media, it can stop me from sharing what looks like a credible chart um, and potentially inadvertently sharing misinformation. You know, one thing we found is that the one question people uh, do tend to get wrong the most is the final question, which has to do with interpreting um, data that's shared in a social media post and that looks credible but isn't, um, which is which is concerning, right? Because that's how a lot of people are coming across their information. Most people are absorbing their news and information on social media today. Dara Worland, a couple of more questions just to wrap this up. Uh, I mentioned at the start that you have a podcast. Uh, I have listened to the first uh, three parts of that. It's called, Is That a Fact? It's a 10-part series. Your most recent guest was Maria Ressa, the CEO and executive editor of Rappler, an online news website in the Philippines that you might have heard about. Uh, there's a documentary being made uh, about her situation. She has been arrested for cyber libel. Uh, tell us about the podcast uh, and how people can find it. Sure. Well, at the News Literacy Project, we've been kicking around the idea of creating a podcast for years. Um, it's kind of been a blue sky idea of ours for a while. And then um, particularly as we expanded our mission to help the general public become more news literate, it started to seem more urgent that we reach the public through a podcast. And so we launched season one in September, and we opted to do the podcast in season so that we could just sort of experiment with formats and see what our audience responds to. Um, and I imagine a lot of people listening are journalists and educators, but, you know, but we're also looking to help bring news literacy skills and abilities to a general public that um, might not otherwise uh, be encountering this. They might not be signing up for Checkology and might be podcast listeners. So our first season, we're looking at at, um, the impact of misinformation on democracy. If you are uh, somebody who follows you know, the news a lot, you've probably seen a lot of stories about you know, the end of American democracy. And it's usually from a political lens, but we, when we look at the threats that we're facing uh, in American democracy today, it seems like the central cause is really misinformation. And so we wanted to take each episode and look at a specific threat caused by our information landscape um, and particularly misinformation um, that is threatening democracy. Um, and so, you know, like, like you mentioned, we're four episodes in at this point. Our first guest was Brendan Nyhan, who's a government professor at Dartmouth, and he's the co-founder of a group called the Bright Line Watch, which monitors democracy and surveys political scientists on, uh, you know, how they're feeling about the state of democracy. Um, we also talked to Michael Luo, who's uh, editor at NewYorker.com, about a piece he wrote on the role of journalism in democracy for a series that the New Yorker is doing um, on democracy and American democracy and is it the end of it. Um, and then as you mentioned, we also spoke to Maria, Maria Ressa about um, threats to press freedom. You know, she lives in the Philippines, which is 
you know, on paper a democracy, uh, but under the uh, under President Duterte, um, press freedom has been incredibly challenged, and she, in particular, has just been um, the subject of repeated verbal attacks, and she was arrested, and she's. Uh, being in, in, she's subject to so many different intimidation tactics by the Duterte government, and she's really bravely continuing to do the work of a journalist. You know, the way she sees it is she is just doing what she signed up to do as a journalist and reporting the facts, um, and really bringing to light a lot of the cruelty and violence uh, in his regime. I would say that the, uh, the biggest thing that I got from that one was how inspiring uh, she can be. Uh, with what she's trying to do. Uh, segwaying off of inspiring, uh, we go to our pay it forward uh, to close it out. Uh, what tips do you have for aspiring uh, journalists and journalism uh, consumers? Well, I'd say for aspiring journalists, um, yeah, I, I, I really admire anyone going into journalism today because so much is required of journalists, more so than I think ever before. And you know, they have to, in many cases, they have to understand multimedia, they have to be able to manage social media, uh, while also remaining uh, neutral and impartial. Um, you know, they're confronted with um, a political situation that's incredibly challenging to cover as a journalist, um, and breaking news constantly. And I think it's got to be an incredibly exhausting time to be a journalist. Um, and so I think the admiration that we should feel for journalists should be um, should be much greater than it is. And I think journalists have to deal with an incredible onslaught of criticism. Um, what I would say is make sure that you're working for a news organization, that the news organizations you choose to work for and to lend your name to, um, make sure that they have really rigorous standards and practices and that they adhere to them. Um, you know, I'll give an example. When I was just starting out um, after grad school as a journalist and, you know, trying to piece together enough work to make a living in New York City, I was working freelance for New York One uh, before I became full-time and freelance for foxnews.com. And it was really striking to me at the time uh, the difference in how the news organizations would treat uh, breaking news. So, you know, at the time, Osama bin Laden was, it just seems like ancient history at this point, but Osama bin Laden was releasing uh, videos um, that would, you know, make it into the hands of news organizations. New York One always waited before they aired the video of Osama bin Laden. They waited for it to be verified by the U.S. government, by credible sources. Um, whereas Fox would air it and would say it has not been verified. And that was striking to me as a young journalist um, and, and it helped me make choices about where I wanted to be lending my name and my efforts and developing my journalism chops. So that would be my primary advice. All right, and last question, is there a journalism organization other than yours that you would like to salute? Well, I mean, you've already mentioned Maria Ressa and Rappler and I would definitely salute her and her entire team um, because they are continuing to report the truth in an environment where um, truth is being assaulted on a daily basis and where their lives and their freedom are at risk. I think that is heroic. It's um, 
unusual and incredibly brave. And she was really shy when I interviewed her about sort of accepting some of those labels. Um, but I think they 100% apply to her. And I think it's really people like her who have that humility, who, who are willing to do that kind of work. Um, who she, she really, it's a calling, it's a calling for her. But the other news organization that I would give a shout out to is Snopes. You know, I think these fact-checking sites are doing incredibly important work. Um, again, in an environment where there's so much information to be fact-checking on a daily basis. And Snopes actually released a statement in March say, saying that it had to scale back on its fact-checking activities and special projects in the face of the overwhelming amount of misinformation about COVID to care for their staff because their staff were at home, their staff were facing, you know, the stress and pressures of uh, being in quarantine, uh, socially distancing, having families at home who, you know, kids who aren't in school. And I just thought that was really human. And um, what they ended up doing was uh, providing links on their site, uh, in addition to the work that they did continue to do to credible sources of information about COVID. Um, so, you know, I think Snopes and other fact-checking sites like political PolitiFact, factcheck.org really um, deserve our support and uh, people should use them on a regular basis. Dara Warland, the, the two biggest uh, takeaways I've gotten from talking to you, think and pay attention, uh, are definitely the most important. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. Great to be here. The News Literacy Project was founded by Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Alan Miller in 2008. In a Q&A with the Washington Post, Alan explained the origin of the project coming from a talk he gave about why his work mattered to his daughter's sixth grade classmates. He received 175 handwritten thank you notes. There doesn't seem to be much appreciation for journalists these days, but we thank anyone taking the steps to make sure that people are better news consumers. For more information on the News Literacy Project, go to their website, newslit.org. In addition to what Dara mentioned, I recommend clicking on the link called Sanitize What You Share. It offers four quick steps to stop the spread of misinformation. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole. Dr. Cole, a journalism professor at Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, inspired hundreds of future journalists in his more than 30 years as a teacher. There are dozens of great quotes about Dr. Cole from his students. I like this one from his NJ.com obituary from Ray Hennessy. Most professors just make sure you're prepared when you leave college. Bob Cole followed you as if your entire career were a course he was still teaching. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. If you're interested in following along with us, follow us on Twitter at Journalism Salute, S-A-L-U-T. There are more episodes to come. Thank you for tuning in.